this American meaning has led some people to spell it as a mute point, M-U-T-E, not worth discussing. Therefore, we're going to keep silent. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, you brought up to me sometime earlier this week that you would want to talk about a topic, words that contradict themselves in meaning, words that have one meaning and the opposite meaning at the same time. Right, not exactly contradict themselves, but point in two directions, yeah. Yeah, well, okay, all right. So they point in two directions, and, and the directions are, it's not just a matter of uh, homonyms that have two different meanings, but the directions are are opposed enough that you right. kind of notice what's going on. Right. Uh, what did you find out about this? What's that called, first of all? Well, uh, people tend to call them contronyms now, C-O-N-T-R-A. NYMS. Um, the first person that seems to have noticed this phenomenon and written about it was Joseph Shipley in his book, Playing with Words, back in 1960. He called them auto-antonyms. Antonym, of course, is the a word and its opposite, and these are words that are opposite to themselves. Then Jack Herring, two years later, wrote an article in which he called them contronyms, C-O-N-T-R-O. So that's the name that sort of stuck, except they changed the O to an A. There are also people who call them antagonyms. Another one that I kind of like, is the name is Janus word. Janus was the Roman god who symbolized the turning of the year, uh, one face looking forward and the other face looking backward into the past. He's the god after whom January is named. And um, that's kind of fun, two-faced word, but that doesn't seem to be used by many people. And, and linguists have come up with all kinds of other fancy terms. This is a subdivision of the general category known as polysemy, which is uh, multiple meanings. And of course, many words have multiple meanings, and we'll be talking about some of those uh, later. But these are a very, a very peculiar subset in which there is an apparent conflict between two of the meanings. Now, you pointed out uh, to me that these are not always a matter of they they mean the opposite from one another but some people will will try to make gyrations and say look it's it look at this weird word it's pointing in one direction that's pointing in the you know 180 degrees in the opposite direction at the same time but uh, they're trying to accommodate something that's not necessarily there all the time and I just want to say uh, I grew up in Contra Costa County in California. So if you take the word contra, which means against, you remember the uh, contras fighting in Nicaragua against the government, right? So this was uh, this is a word that's used to mean against. And contra costa literally means against the coast. And I remember people saying, but you know, it, it can't be against the coast and adjacent to the coast at the same time. You know, it's it's like they were trying to make it sound like this is a contronym or an auto antonym, but ah, I don't really, I don't really. Well, it's, you're up against the coast. Yeah, yeah. Right? It just <laughs> that means next to. But some of these are pretty interesting, and they actually do in their most um, 
pure form, they actually do mean two opposite things at once. But there are some that are in the category of it's interesting to note how different the meanings are and how things can be utterly confused if you use one word versus the other. I want to give credit first to the Maliazzi brothers on Car Talk who first brought this idea to my attention by reading a list that had been sent to him by a listener and laughing their way through it. Uh, but I thought I'd do something more than just uh, mention these pairs to try to explore their etymology. How did they come to mean the two different things as much as I could? Well, let's get started. What, what are some of the words that we found here that fit in this category? Well, there are quite a few subcategories. One of them is sometimes Americans and UK speakers um, use words in opposite meanings, and a classic one is table as a verb having to do with parliamentary procedure. So uh, the first use of table as a verb that entered into English was to enter into a table or list to tabulate. It also had another meaning, which is kind of very concrete and charming, provide food for somebody, put food on the table, you tabulate it. But uh, by the 17th century, it had come to mean to submit formally for discussion. And you can see how making up a list and writing an agenda and announcing that something is about to be discussed all logically link to each other. So in England and still in the United Kingdom today, uh, to table a matter for discussion means to put it on the floor for discussion, to bring it up, to prepare to discuss it. Sometime in the mid-19th century, speakers in the U.S., for no reason that's very clear, used it for the opposite meaning, to postpone consideration of a topic indefinitely. So when you table a motion or a bill, you're saying, we're not going to discuss this now, maybe never. And it occurred to me that what you're really doing there is using another piece of furniture besides a table, you're shelving it. Yes, yeah, that's the that's the synonym that comes to mind for me in that in that usage is that you're shelving it, you're sticking it up on the shelf, putting it away. To leave it out on the table, in a way, doesn't make much sense, does it? It doesn't to me. Um, if yeah, yeah, if you're trying to get rid of it, right? Right. Yeah, well, but the thing is that we have this expression to take up a, a matter, so that gives people, I think, the idea you're picking up the piece of paper and holding it and putting it on maybe on a lectern and you know examining it. Whereas if you just leave it on the table, it gets buried eventually under all kinds of other stuff and forgot. Uh, well, I like to keep my table clean, don't you? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you've seen my desk. <laughs> Okay. I clean it up every once in a while. Okay, so another one is nonplussed, where the British in the 17th century um, developed this rather learned term. It's the word non, no, a negative term, with plussed, which is no plus plussed. Mm -hmm. And it means you can't go any further. And so it meant to be brought to a standstill, to be perplexed, confounded. You can't go any further. No plus. Right. Mm -hmm. And mid 20th century, and this isn't that old, so it's only half a century old, that Americans started using it to mean something slightly different that's not exactly the opposite. It's unperturbed, mm -hmm. unfazed. So the British are saying, ah, I'm really bothered by this. I'm, I'm blocked. I'm, I'm, it's halting my forward motion. And the Americans are saying, ah, doesn't bother me. Right. So. I would say they're sort of opposites. They are sort of opposites, and especially if you think about it this way. 
in British English, if you bring it to a standstill, that does sound like you're you're literally not moving anywhere. So you're just stopped in your tracks. You haven't gone anywhere. So that doesn't sound all that different from being unfazed, because in both cases you're just not moving and you're you're just there in place. However, if you think of the British one as being in a state of agitation because you're confused and you're perplexed and you're just you are brought to a standstill, but you're agitated about it. Whereas in the American usage, we've come to use it in the sense of, yeah, it's just, you know, water off a duck's back. It doesn't doesn't phase me at all. It doesn't bother me. In that sense, you can get a little bit closer to the meanings being really diametrically opposed. And it strikes me that the word uh, isn't easily analyzed by somebody who doesn't know the meaning by looking at it. How would you ever guess that nonplussed meant? unperturbed i don't think you would and i it's for that reason i think it's a word that's used mostly by very pretentious writers Mm -hmm. moot is another classic one it has a germanic root and originally meant the same thing as a meeting it actually is etymologically related to meetings so you go to the moot which is the meeting and then as an adjective it came to mean something fit to be discussed as a meeting, something debatable, uncertain, unable to be firmly resolved. So a moot point is one that can't be definitively settled, but you want to talk about it. Yeah. In the U.S., in the early 19th century, it came to mean in law, having no practical significance, not worth discussing. Yeah. So a moot matter in Britain really needs to be talked about in the U.S., you might as well just forget about it. It's all settled and done and not not worth talking about it anymore. Usually it does mean it's settled. It's moot. Uh, often in a moot court or a moot court case, uh, what's happened is situation has changed. The uh, issues that were originally raised by the original case have changed in such a way that the whole case is moot. There's no point in even talking about it anymore. Yeah, and and it also in the U.S., it, it can mean that it's settled, it's been decided, so it's moot. But then there's another uh, trend in the word that goes toward um, it's irrelevant. It shouldn't even be part of this conversation. It's right. just moot. Just forget about it. it. It's a red herring. We don't have to discuss it in this. It doesn't pertain to this matter. But, that really is the opposite of the British way. And that is very far from something that would be debatable and a topic that needs to be discussed. So I, I think, in yes, in legal terms, a, a, a moot point would be a settled matter. But I think in common parlance, uh, it's just as likely that it's going to mean that's irrelevant. That bothers me. <laughs> I just want to say for a second, it bothers me that I know that the original meaning of moot is that it's debatable. Uh, it's not a word that I'm likely to ever use. Uh, from the time that I learned that the original meaning was that it's debatable, I realized I stand a chance of confusing people or is not. I don't mean to say that it's moot. I mean to mm-hmm. say that it's irrelevant. Of course, this American meaning has led some people to spell it as a mute point, M-U-T-E, not worth discussing. Therefore, we're going to keep silent. Yes, and that's in your book, right? I think yes, you have that. Yes, and that's just a plain old error. Yeah, sure, a mute point, but the, but uh, it's I think that's something of an acorn, isn't it? Because if you yes. hear it and you think it's a mute point, meaning we don't need to discuss it, yeah, it kind of makes sense. You can you can make the logic work, but it's but it is an error. Right. 
Now, this next one, I, I think, is a little bogus. Um, I, there are lots of people who like to compile lists of these, and I looked at several. There's, interestingly, in Wikipedia, the two separate articles on contronyms and um, antagonyms, and they don't really cross-pollinate well. That's typical for Wikipedia. Um, but there were a lot of other sources that had more detail, and one of them came up with dollop, um, now, originally, a dollop was a clump of grass or weeds. I'm thinking sort of like a bigger version of a divot, which is yeah. a bunch of grass chopped out by a bad golfer. But in the 19th century, it came to mean a, a whole lot of something like not just a, a, a clod of dirt with weeds sticking out of it. But uh, an example given was I sent a great dollop of water into the face of the poor lieutenant. Now, Americans use it not in an opposite sense, but in a slightly milder one. We tend to think of a dollop as being fairly generous, but still quite small. You put a dollop of whipped cream on a piece of pumpkin pie. Mm -hmm. So the the meanings overlap rather than really contradict each other. But, uh, you know, you can't say that dollop in America is tiny. It's not the same thing as a smidge. Well, yeah, I'm with you on that one. A dollop is an amount of something. It's greater than a smidge. Um, it doesn't, in my mind, need to be a large amount of something. And it does have to be sort of liquidy or soft and shapeless. Yeah, right. If right. you were sprinkling uh, almond, sliced almonds on a pie, you wouldn't say uh, there was a dollop of almonds. <laughs> no, 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 no. So another way that these evolve is that sometimes words change into their opposite meanings over history. And uh, I want to talk about a few of those. And one of the most famous is ravel. Now, a ravel was originally a tangle. And the verb could be used to mean both become tangled and then disentangled. And those two meanings confusingly coexisted for a long time. When Macbeth speaks of sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, he means that the tangle of our cares, our problems, our worries, is untangled so that it can be knit into the seamless fabric of sleep. But this meaning has died out, and disentangling is now usually expressed as unraveling. And we really don't talk about raveling much anymore. No, not much anymore, but it's just as correct to look at the edge of your blanket and say, oh, it's raveling or it's unraveling. <laughs> it's, right. It, it has, uh, you know, if the threads are starting to come apart, you can equally say both uh, to great confusion, uh, at least in our household. <laughs> I always want to make raveling be the exact opposite of unraveling, but it really isn't, is it ever? It doesn't really mean to tie together. It, 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 it means to become tangled. Yeah. Yeah. Originally. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, when I look at the word, I always think of the composer Ravel, but oh. that's okay. irrelevant. Well, yeah, that's that's your little not word. irrelevant. <laughs> okay, that's your that's your little private problem. <laughs> I think the, I think the most of us can look at the content. If it's not if it's not capitalized, I can usually get it right. Another famous example is let let in a specific meaning the verb originally meant to hinder to obstruct so to to let somebody was to prevent them from doing something now it's largely obsolete now and it's only when we're reading shakespeare or the bible that we're likely to run into let in that sense 
King James Bible, I mean. But in legal terminology, it's been preserved in the term let or hindrance, and those are synonyms. Anything that hinders something from happening is also a let. Mm -hmm. And there it's a noun. Uh, Most of the time today, however, we use let to refer to something being allowed to happen rather than being prevented from happening. Mm-hmm. I see that here, and it prompts me to think of a or another word that I think is is shifted over time. Uh, is the word yet? It, well, rhymes with let. It just made me think of yet because, isn't it true? We 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 mean yet to mean uh, well, I haven't gotten there yet. Meaning that's the most common one, but a slightly more historical one might mean um, instead of saying I haven't gotten there yet, uh, you could say I'm. St- I'm here yet, meaning uh, I'm still yes. here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the word yet could actually, even today, you could use it in the sense of meaning still. It's still happening. But it right. sounds they a both, little archaic, doesn't it? It's a little they both refer to the future, but you can use it in a negative context or a positive one. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's one that, uh, again, I'm, I don't really think is an antagonism, uh, but it's something that we've discussed before and, and um, bothers me, so I want to bring it up again. That's awesome. Mm, yeah. Originally, it was full of awe, so reverential, feeling a sense of almost mystical, transporting emotion. Later in the Romantic period, which we talked about recently, it became to mean weird and dreadful. Mm-hmm. So uh, awful, uh, an awful horror, you know, awful sight of the mummy rising from his tomb or whatever. And then, of course, it means it came to mean horrible. But in the U.S., it uh, took on a general sense of just overwhelming. And then in modern American use, it just means marvelous. Wonderful, and it has become so weakened. It's mm-hmm. not exactly its opposite, but it often means oh, cool. Yeah. But in the in the very weak sense, uh, like um, we decided to have the spaghetti and meatballs for dinner, and the waiter says, "Awesome. What else would you like to have to drink with that?" Yeah. Oh, you're going to the <laughs> beach today? That's awesome. Yeah, well, right. you're hoping when you go to the beach, it'll be calm and the waves will be nice and it'll be a, a, a moderate day and, and the weather will be nice and everything. You don't hope it'll be awesome to you. <laughs> that would that would imply that it, you're going to go to the on some very stormy day full of drama. Yeah. So there's often no awe involved. It just means nice. But that's a shift in meaning rather than a polar opposite, I would say. It's akin to these intensifiers that you point out in the book that have much watered down meaning. Right. Like terrible. Now, here's a, an antique one that um, changed a long time ago. Anon. Now, of course, we use anon now mostly as an abbreviation for anonymous. But as an adverb, it originally meant at once, promptly. I'll come anon means I'm coming right away. I'll be right there. Um, but it often got misused, often when people say, okay, I'm on my way, and then they show up a half hour, an hour later. And that was happening back in Shakespeare's day, too. In Henry IV, Part One. Falstaff is in the Boar's Head Tavern, and he's trying to get served, and Francis uh, keeps saying, uh, Anon, Anon. And what he's saying is, be right there, just, just, just a moment, be right with you. And instead... 
he keeps delaying and delaying and Falstaff starts joking about it. And the joke goes right over the heads of a lot of modern audiences because they hear a nun and they think, well, he's saying I'll come after a little while. Why is Falstaff getting so impatient? Uh, it's because Falstaff still knows the original meaning, which is right now. Mm-hmm. So it did come to mean eventually after a bit. Something we could do sometime was explore Shakespeare's jokes, which now go flat because we don't understand how he's using the words anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that would be, that would be a, a great topic. And I'll leave that to you, you to research. A, a related one is presently, which is very like Anon. Originally, it meant literally at the present, at once, now, and slowly evolved into soon. And uh, the second meaning occurs very early, and the two coexisted for several centuries. So if somebody said, I'll be there presently, uh, you really didn't know whether they meant I'm coming right away or I'm coming after a while. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time before presently, which meant after a bit, to be the dominant form. Yeah, right. And in reality, these days, we don't use anon and presently all that much. And probably no. because of these con- contradictory meanings, we want to be more clear. When, when we're announcing our arrival or our time of arrival, we want to be more clear than um, than that. Yeah, although I don't know when people are, are texting about their imminent arrival at an appointment, they often are pretty ambiguous. <laughs> well, I, I think that this is these time time words that announce your arrival, I think are they're inextricably bound to the human condition, which means <laughs> I you can say I'll be there soon, meaning I really hope I'll be there soon. <laughs> But, you know, there's traffic and uh, somebody called me on the phone and it was a, I had to take the call. And I mean, there was a delay here, or there, a legitimate one. When I said I would be there soon, it was really a matter of that was my intention. <laughs> I had every intention of being there soon, but I just couldn't. You know, life happened. Life intervened and I couldn't be there. Um, and I think that's that the word soon um may in the future appear on this list and we may come up with a with a some some other word that is taking the place of that because soon is almost has no meaning uh, if you see somebody texting you i'll be there soon yeah another interesting one is uh, kind of an obsolete word hussy um you don't hear that much anymore uh i suppose today the equivalent is a slut um although that's a little more heavy-handed than a hussy a hussy is a, a shameless woman, a flirt. But originally, a hussy was uh, sort of a, an affectionate name for a housewife. It's almost uh, a nickname for housewife. And the mistress of a household was referred to as the hussy. And a hussy was characterized not by flirtatiousness, but by thrift. She was something that, like the Bible prescribes, you know, she takes good care of the household finances and so on. Interestingly, in Proverbs, it also says that the the good wife is the one who uh, acquires property and <laughs> invests in real estate and you know builds up the family wealth, which is something you hardly ever hear conservative preachers who are talking about the proper roles of women according to the Bible uh, talking about. Anyway, um, in the 17th century, it also came to mean uh, the case that you store your needles in. So a hussy was this little packet full of needles. But there is a tendency to take words that refer to women and make them into insults. 
This mm. comes from men, of course. And uh, that happened to Hussey. It came to mean a disreputable woman, especially a flirtatious one. And so it goes from uh, uh, labeling a respectable married woman to somebody that might possibly break up your marriage. Mm-hmm. Be a home wrecker instead of a homemaker. Heard mainly today in revivals of The Music Man in the song Shapoopy, which begins, A woman who will kiss on the very first date is certainly a hussy. <laughs> I didn't remember that. <laughs> but uh, I, I imagine younger people today hearing that word and thinking, whoa, that's a new one on me, because you certainly don't hear it in almost any context. Right. Although, you know, the, it surprised me how the word hubby for husband has been revived. It's mm. used all the time now. I see it on the Internet posts. The hubby and I went to Cancun or whatever. I associate that with my parents' generation in the 30s and 40s mm. somehow. And I certainly don't remember anybody in the 60s and 70s talking about their hubby. Yes. But uh, it may be a class thing. I don't know. Um, but it astonishes me that it's so lively today. You're right. It was gone for a while especially in uh, Facebook or this social network and so on. It's, it's common shorthand for husband. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much wifey though. No, no, (laughs) no. Well, Paul, this is a great introduction to this topic, but there are a lot more examples to explore and subcategories to explore. Believe it or not, we're not finished. (laughs) So I hope to take this up next time we talk. Okay, sure. All right. Thank you, Paul. Talk to you later. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.